Welcome to Lynn Cullen Live. Talk radio without the stuff. Email your questions and comments to lynn at pghcitypaper.com. And now your host, Lynn Cullen. Hello, hello, hello. The 16th of January is upon us. And uh, we had an hour to spend together here. I uh, welcome you. Um, I'm not going to talk about the Brexit thing, but I, it does. I wonder if um, if the British government is even more dysfunctional than ours. It'd be a. I mean, the, fa the reality is, is both the British government and our government are in situations that is are akin to paralysis both of them the uh the brits with uh, actually at this point is more um, potentially uh, devastating cuz at some point uh this game of chicken um has got to end although it's quite clear the Democrats are not going to give Trump what he wants, and, and Trump is not capable of admitting defeat. So I can't, <laughs> as usual with this guy, can't see how this ends. By the way, hearkening back also to a call yesterday that uh, said that f uh, federal workers make more than private sector workers, which was um, contradicted by uh, a piece that uh, Clarence sent in, which said uh, quite the opposite. I mean, job for job, there I guess there are some, perhaps, government jobs that pay better. But overall, on average, government jobs pay 31% uh, less. So why would someone take a government job? Interestingly, today, the uh, Washington Post addressed that um, by, you know, make anecdotally, I can tell it's one of those days where words ain't coming to me quickly, um, that often people make a calculated decision uh, to take a government job which pays them less than a private sector job because in the past a government job was viewed as stable. That calculation is starting to look like that doesn't work anymore because, uh, well, there have been, what, three shutdowns in the last, it, it's, it's government jobs are increasingly unstable. People take government jobs also because of not only the stability, but also, uh, I guess, the benefits often um, might be better than something being offered in the, in the private sector. Uh, but they talk specifically about a guy who is an aerospace engineer. Now, that's a guy with a, a true skill and education, and he made this calculated decision to go work for the FAA, the uh, Aviation Administration, 
because, again, steady hours, stable career. He said, I knew I wouldn't earn as much as I could in the private sector, but I can be home more. He said, uh, he's quoted in the article s saying, if I'm going to put up with this level of stress, I might as well get paid for it. So he's thinking he might go into the private sector where he makes more money. I, um, and, and that has been the calculation that an awful lot of very talented people make. Uh, the federal government cannot offer the kind of money that uh, the private sector will. But the grand bargain that they have, so morale, there, there are, there's a group that uh, tracks morale at, of government workers. It is, of course, just plummeting. It was, it was plummeting under Trump anyway. Um, in especially in a number of departments, the State Department morale is just the Agriculture Department, the Interior Department, uh, the FTC, Homeland Security. Um, so job satisfaction now um, is, is really pretty bad. And it, it could well be that the federal government in the future will not be able to attract the kind of talent that they did in the past because they won't have this stability that people are looking for. Uh, for instance, somebody coming out of law school who might be able to get you know, a job paying big bucks decides no. And, and by the way, there are people who actually like the idea of a mission, you know, not wanting to be in the private sector, but serving people. I know somebody, smart as a whip, who could have made tons of money as an attorney, but wanted to work in government and uh, because he wanted to help people. Uh, this article says, yeah, so if you want to be an astronaut, you got to do government, <laughs> you got to work with the government. But people who are economists or attorneys now uh, might start thinking, you know, I guess I better do the private sector. Just saying. We've got some calls uh, coming in already. Uh, caller, go ahead, please. Hello. Hello. Yeah, I just wanted to point out that uh, <laughs> they're slowly chipping away at those better benefits, too. Oh, I'm not really slowly. I think they've made some pretty good headway on that. So uh, you're now left with a situation where you've got, you're trying to attract employees or good employees to a job with lower pay and uh, not that good of benefits either. Uh, like, for example, I'm uh, where I work, they're, they're doing away with the pension for new employees, and I can't put my wife on my health care. Wow. Uh, so it's starting to look like the so private sector. So you might as well you might as well make more money in the private sector if it's going to look like that, be like that. 
Yeah, I think the only exception is what you said, where there, yeah, there's some of these positions don't exist in the private sector. So right. That would be the only exception. Right. You know, so, but yeah, the, and yeah, I'm not sure long term. I think that's probably a pretty bad thing because you're going to, you know, be attracting people that, you know, I don't even really know what the way to describe that is. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's you know, you're not going. Last resort position. That's right. You're. It, it means that. God, it, and it's it's always these Republicans who do this. I mean, they hate government, so you know they denigrate government yeah. workers, and um, and then they create an environment where um, not the best and brightest are going to want to work in the government, <coughs> and they they just yeah, keep. It's always. They keep. It's always an effort to prove that government can't work. That's so right. Every time it does, and there's you know, you know, you have a successful pension system and uh you know we'll do everything we can to sabotage that and make sure that it collapses right and uh it's interesting because they're trying to get us to move into uh the equivalent of a 401k right, right obviously and it's the only em only employer i've ever worked for who didn't offer to match to match a match a, a single uh, no match of any kind i've i've worked i've worked for an employer like that <coughs> yeah. I mean, what's the point? Why couldn't couldn't yeah. you just go out and get your own 401k without? Exactly. <laughs> I, don't even, I don't even understand what's the point of doing that. Well, the point is, is that you know the bosses don't don't uh, acknowledge anymore that labor is is uh, valuable and important to them, and they don't want the kind of contract with a person that they used to they that used to go without question. You know. Yeah, well, it's, in, it's, this, in this case, the bosses seem to have seemed to think it works just fine for them. Well, because it does. Uh, yeah, <laughs> mysteriously, they still have a pension. Yeah, right. I mean, <laughs> come on. And uh, oh, I remember. Yeah, so I've worked for places that didn't match broadcast uh, radio. My last radio gig, they didn't uh, do a match. When a 401k was first instituted at WTAE Television when I worked there, and they had had a pension up to that point, and they moved to 401k, this would be in the 80s, and then they said yeah. that they would not do a match for any union employee. And I, oh. and oh, I, wow. they, so the, all the bosses, all the, all the suits got a match, and all of us, you know, reporters and whatever. Reporters were the only ones. Uh, reporters and engineers, I guess, the guys who uh, and the photographers. Yeah. We did not get a match. And I said, but wait a minute. <laughs> I was told when I came here <clears throat> that you, if if you're hired as a reporter, you have to join the union. So part of the yeah, requirement for employment was I had to join a union. And then they're penalizing me for joining a union, which they told me I had to do, and not that I wouldn't have, but they, you had to. There's, there was no. Yeah. So I, it's just they just like screwing workers, especially workers who have some power, as a union uh, worker would have, yeah. a little leverage, <laughs> a little teeny weeny bit of leverage. I don't know. It's really something. So are you? You're not furloughed. Yeah. You're not furloughed. 
now? Are you working? No, no, I'm, I work for a different. I work for a different government. Oh, okay, okay, <laughs> a different government. So, well, like like Trump, you work for um, the Russians. Lots of, yeah, lots of people that I work closely with do work for are furloughed right now. So yeah. I've had uh, meetings that we, you know, meetings that take place every year. Um, uh, major meetings that essential information is passed that were are, were canceled. Yeah. Um, and now we're moving into the next round of those, like ones that are off in the, you know, a couple months in the future that we're wondering if those are going to take place now. So. Well, welcome to the, um, yeah, welcome to the new reality. Uh, if you're a worker, well, you yeah, live I in mean, a constant yeah, state so of stress. There are no, there is no security, none. None. No, no, and uh, yeah, I just it all seems to fit into that philosophy of well, to the extent w when government works, we'll make sure that it doesn't. That's right. That seems to be there, uh, you know, one of the operating philosophies. I mean, that's been since it, it was Reagan who started it. Famously said, "Government is not the solution to our problems. Government is the problem." That was the great Ronald Reagan, right? So yeah. no, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, but the, it's interesting to see the people that you know voice that are often the first ones, uh, you know, turning to government for a whole variety of different things. Oh, there's no doubt. You know, I see it on a daily basis. No, but. it's well known. <laughs> it's well known yeah. that it is the reddest states that take in the most government money. The reddest states have the most people on welfare. The reddest states have the most people taking advantage of government programs. So they denigrate government, these people, and don't even acknowledge that they're taking constantly from it. It's just, you know, I don't know, whatever. No, no, and the, yeah, I mean, even basic problems that I think every person would think, I, sorry, I can't really elaborate too much on it, but just I see people's a problem that is their problem, the first place that they turn to is the government. It's right. like, well, I'm sorry, but you're going to have to handle that on your own. <laughs> right, so, right. But I'm sure there's many many such examples. But, oh, uh, God, yes. So thank anyway, you for the call. Well, thank you very much. Okay, appreciate yeah, thank it. Thank you. Have a good one. You too. Bye. Bye. Do we still have a second caller there? Okay. Caller, go ahead, please. Hello. Hello. Yep. Okay. You said the Washington Post, two-year contributor. I'll give you that. It is a couple years old, but it says from 1990s, to 2017 or 16, now it's a little bit outdated, yeah, okay, it, they said or they made double. That's what they said. I didn't make up a bullshit story like you said yesterday. I'm just telling you what I read. And I can contradict everything you said by finding all kind of other articles that contradict you. It's just, so I give it a big question mark now. I'm confused by the whole thing. But I wasn't bullshitting you. And about the Rand Paul, that was on the Huffington Post, too, so yeah. it wasn't bullshitting you there either. So it wasn't bullshit as usual. It seems like when it's not what you like, then you want to argue with people. Just like the guy last week, you didn't like he was saying, so he gave you a headache. And I gave you a headache yesterday. Sometime you give me a fuck. Goodbye. Hmm. Well. He is emotional. He is. <laughs> oh, God. Okay. So, uh, where are we going from here? Oh, I love this story. You know how much I love obits. Uh, 
let me find this woman, this ha uh, Frances Williams. Uh, she's dead and gone. Seems like a lady I would have liked. She died at uh, 87 um, in the fall. And uh, her kids uh, wrote a, an obituary, which is what you do, and they sent it to the local paper, which is a Gannett-owned, um, the Louisville Courier-Journal. Used to be a good paper with Gannett owning it. I, I doubt that it is, because uh, Gannett took over. I know the, the Green Bay newspaper, which was a good, good local paper. And just destroyed it. I mean, just destroyed it. It's not even good enough to wrap fish in. Um, so she, they, her daughter wrote this lovely, um, trying to humanize her mom, trying to flesh her out. Uh, and she talked about how um, if you're coming to the funeral, don't be wearing jeans because one of her mother's pet peeves was the way people dressed for funerals. So it was a cute, sweet, loving, uh, you know, that clearly showed the personality of, of the woman. And um, they got a, a note from the paper that said the obituary, which, by the way, cost $1,684. Jeez could not run because it was um, offensive, potentially. And here's what was offensive. Let me find it. Just unbelievable. Oh, okay. They little bit talked about her being a bridge-playing, church-going, Elvis Presley, Willie Nelson-loving political junkie who did not take gladly to fools, a very, very spirited woman who uh, said that, um, that President Trump was killing her. <laughs> well, uh, I've said that many times myself. It is hardly something that is not said these days, right? My God, he's killing me, the stress, the blah, 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 blah. And so they put that in because that defined their mom. And the paper wouldn't run it because it said that, uh, because it had what they called a political sentence. Anyway, uh, the good news is the paper has... Uh, faced a huge backlash because the, one of the sons went to social media with it. And the paper has now apologized and said they will run, they will run the obit. And, uh, you know, th I read the story today in the Washington Post, and the Post uh, went on to say that we started seeing more and more obits referring to politics during the 2016 presidential campaign, yeah? I mean, we've read some of them on the show, and in fact, the first one that the Washington Post uh, puts in here as a for instance is the obit of a dear friend of mine, uh, Jeffrey Cohen. I, you know, I, I forget he's dead. He was such a wondrous force. He died too young. Anyway, 
Jeff Cohen, who's a chiropractor here uh, in Pittsburgh and just the kindest soul in the world, Mr. Rogers, uh, Fred Rogers, uh, relied on him in many ways. And I know as, as Fred was, was dying, uh, Jeff would go to his house and literally get in bed with him and do things to ameliorate his pain. Um, but his obituary, as the Washington Post reminds people, said this, which at the time was, I mean, I just howled when I read it. Jeffrey would ask that in lieu of flowers, please do not vote for Donald Trump. And they pointed out that that obituary uh, appeared in the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. I wonder if it would be allowed in the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette as currently constituted. Um, but they point out that, I mean, other people were doing it from the other side. Here's an obit for a guy that ran in Akron, Ohio. His only regret is not being able to vote against Hillary Clinton in the upcoming election. So that was, and here's, here's a great one. Here's um, the obit for Mary Ann Noland of Richmond, Virginia. Uh, it said, faced with the prospect of voting for either Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton, Mary Ann Noland of Richmond chose instead to pass into the eternal love of God on Sunday, May 15th at the age of 68. So there have been, since Trump came on stage, this was intended, um, the, the, the obits have become politicized. Everything is politicized. Um, <clears throat> speaking of obits, I'm not going to talk about Carol Channing. For some reason, she always gave me the creeps. I'm sorry. I know people just loved her, and she certainly had a lot of pizzazz and pep and but I, I just found her essentially I don't know grotesque I I don't know <laughs> so I'm not but I, I quick obit today for Clyde King who was one of those unsung amazing singers who do backup for big stars and her voice is on so many albums, so many important songs. Clyde e. King never made it as a, it's it's like all, I don't think she was part of that uh, wonderful uh, documentary by Morgan Neville, uh, 20 Feet from Stardom. Uh, but that just cataloged all these amazing women, singers, who of course, stood in the background and supported male singers or male bands. Just the way the world is, folks. Clyde e. King. She's spent three years as a core member of Ray Charles' uh, famous backing vocal, uh, were they tr a trio? The Raylettes. <laughs> um... Uh, she did backup vocals for B.B. King, for Joe Cocker, for the Rolling Stones, for Odetta, for Steely Dan, for and 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 
Leonard Skinner, Leonard Skinner, um, and and the the big one though, the one that really was Bob Dylan. And upon her death, uh, Dylan did release a statement, and he said she was my ultimate singing partner. No one ever came close. We were two soulmates. Uh, in fact, they were lovers for um, four or five years. And this was during his Christian period. Uh, so anyway, I just wanted to give a shout out to Clyde e. King, who was the go-to top-tier background singer, but never made it um, as a... Just so, you know, it's our loss that some of these women did not get for whatever reason you know, uh, stardom. Uh, we have another call. Hello, caller. Hello. Hey, hey, Ren, it's Mike in D.C. Hi. I've heard you talk about the topic of government furlough for a while, and I'm hesitant to call in, but I'm going to talk about it anyway. Um, as a contractor for the government, <clears throat> no longer employed because my contract was um, not renewed. Oh, I'm um, sorry. If you're going to feel sorry for anybody, feel sorry for the contractors. Because I've, the government I've employees are all going to get their money back. That's true. They and will the eventually. Contractors literally are not going to get a penny back. There's no way. Right. Because a lot of the contractors are per hour. So the government says, we'll pay General Dynamics um, uh, $100 an hour and to do this work and then general dynamics pays someone fifty dollars to do that work um so general dynamics doesn't get fifty dollars and either does the employee and the reason they have to do that and this is the part i don't want to say is because government workers want the job because a lot of them because it's job security but also they don't have to do much i've taught five thousand people in the department of defense and I can count on my two hands how many people, if I had a business, I would hire for that business. Is it because the it system itself, people. no, the system itself does not require people to work hard? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, there's no penalty for not working hard. That's right. Okay. There's no and penalty for being lazy. Oh, yeah. You just get pushed on down the road. Yeah. I've known people who've lost their security clearance, and they couldn't fire them. So they put them in a closet somewhere that wasn't secret to, and gave them some task to do that they <clears throat> never even did. So it's where people go who, to hide who don't really want a lot of people to produce their work. I'm sure and we've... If you talk to any contractor. Okay. And I, I, I just want to say that I understand your reluctance to say that because it, it dis, you know, it's, it sounds like it disparages all government workers. And we know there's good ones and bad ones, as is true in the private sector as well. But, I mean, all of us have dealt with a public uh, employee who clearly, if you had the power, you would fire. I mean, I just right. get, I give you, I mean, I give you the East Liberty Post Office, okay? <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I believe me. I mean, you think, geez, I mean, just, you know. Customer service. And even when they have this job, they're not—they're still complaining that they're not a GS 
whatever. Yeah. Okay. So there's a grade scale, a general scale that mm-hmm. tells employees how much they make. So if I work with someone who's a GS-12, I know they make $100,000. And if on step seven, I know they make $120,000. You know exactly how much they make. And anybody who's wondering how much an employee makes to do their job can Google it, and you'll find out exactly what the employees make. It is true. You can make more in the private sector, like I probably did working for my war profiteer. But um, then there's large gaps where the contract is over, and then I'm unemployed. Yeah. So there is no easy life. That's what I want to say to people who complain, who point their finger over at that person and say, look at them, they got this. There's no easy life. Well, not for, work, not for workers anymore. There's no sense of, uh, you know, used to be a person had a job and, that's, and they had security and, and it was, there was stability and they could make plans. And, and clearly, uh, very few people have that now. Young people definitely will never see anything like that. And you have to keep reinventing yourself. You have to, if you are by nature an anxious person, God help you. I don't even know how you live in this nasty uh, capitalist workplace we got going. I don't know. But I feel for you. I'm sorry. So are you, like, unemployed right now? Yes, I'm totally unemployed. Oh, I'm sorry. That's okay. I'll find another work. I used to be an actor. Unemployment doesn't really scare me. Yeah. Um, But... You know, this is a thorny topic for contractors and government workers. And um, but really, if you want to feel sorry for someone, feel sorry for, for the, the contractors. contractors. They okay. Most often, do the work for the federal employees who push their work off to the contractor. Okay. And I, if I had a nickel for every time someone responded to one of my emails, thanks for the speedy reply, I would never have to work again. And I, I would say to my co-workers, why does everybody say that to me? And I said, because you respond quickly. And I was like, how often do other people respond? <laughs> if at I all. They want, yeah, if at all. Yeah, yeah. And there's no incentive for them to do that. They yeah. know they're GS7 and they're not ever going to be anything higher. So why work? My boss can't get rid of me. That's a stultifying environment for a person to work into. God almighty. Okay, you. Yeah, I think <clears throat> Okay. All right. Good luck. Good luck. Thanks. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Um, <clears throat> I don't know. Do I want to? I've been reading about this ad, this commercial by Gillette. Have you seen it? I, I had not seen it, but Milton, you know, as usual. Uh, <laughs> before I ever even mentioned it, sent me uh, it uh, today. So I looked at it for the first time. I um, I would play it for you, but it, it's so vi- it's frankly more. I I, I don't think it would. Uh, it's it, there's the visuals are very very important in it, but it, it it's not. It, this is an ad supposedly for. Um, For a, a razor, <laughs> I didn't see the end, but um, but there are a lot of men are just enraged by this ad, and um, 
it's not an ad for a razor. It's an ad, really. It's you know, I, I don't know. I, I don't know about advertising anymore, so I don't know. I'm sure there's a name for this kind of an ad. Uh, one that doesn't push your product as much as it pushes uh, uh, an idea. Um, and I guess these can be very dangerous to do because they are provocative and or controversial. And um, this ad, not that you know, you're aware that ads have titles, but this ad is called We Believe. And it's, it's all about masculinity. Um, and it, it targets the idea of masculinity that frankly holds sway in our culture, which uh, is macho and, uh, and increasingly uh, when talking about it, people put adjective, an adjective in front of masculinity and that adjective is toxic, toxic uh, masculinity. And those words are part of this ad. Uh, the pictures are of boys bullying other boys, people saying boys will be boys, boys will be boys, uh, excusing obnoxious behavior by men to women, um, it's all there. So there's a lot of Me Too awareness in it. And you'd ask, like, why is somebody who wants to sell razor <laughs> razors wade into that? And I don't have the answer for that. I mean, the business answer for that. Um, but The ad asks, is, is this the best a man can get? Is it? We can't hide from it. It has been going on far too long. We can't laugh it off, making the same old excuses. Why would Gillette do an ad like that? I, d I don't know if you've seen it yet, but it's creating uh, quite a stir obviously among uh, men who uh, feel that the ad denigrates them. And these, the men who feel that the ad denigrates them are, are in for a rough period <laughs> because Toxic masculinity is a fact, and it, it hurts men. This is like, you know, the stirrings of, you know, almost a kind of feminist movement for men. There are men who fear that they are being feminized, and, and you see that on the right a lot, when in fact... Taking on toxic masculinity, if you ask me, is about liberating men, men's liberation from these stultified uh, idea of what it is to be a man. Just as women in the women's movement and women's liberation took on that narrow, ridiculous idea of what a woman is, and what is feminine? 
women rose up and said, we're more than that. And we're still fighting to show that. But I think you'd have to be a total troglodyte not to acknowledge that, yes, women are not just homemaker, mother, you know, although there are people who cling to that, right? So I, I feel that like Gillette, for whatever reason, decided to throw its hat in. Most of its customers for this product are obviously they're men. And this is Procter & Gamble, Gillette, and uh, they have put out a statement saying, because of all the negative reaction, we recognize the ad is sparking a lot of passionate dialogue. At the same time, it's getting people to stop and think about what it means to be our best selves, which is the point of the spot. Um, so, Milton had sent me that. I, I saw it this morning when I woke up, and I was thinking of talking about uh, the ad and masculinity. And then I opened my New York Times, and there's a story there about how boys are hurt by the idea of what is masculine. I mean, we know they are. And if we care about boys, and, and I, the young, younger boys seem to be less messed up, more willing to be comfortable stepping outside that rigid idea of masculinity. I see it with my son, his friends. But this is a a piece in the New York Times talking about how boys are outperformed in school by girls from preschool on. There, I mean, you can you can track it with test scores and this and that. Boys are being left behind, starts as early as preschool, by the time students reach college now, women are graduating at a higher rate than men. Boys need a serious intervention. And in order for, for it, men need to understand that they have been harmed by boys don't cry, a real man doesn't this, men who are so, we all know plenty of men who could no more articulate their emotion than fly. And that's because they were raised that way. That's the expectation of what a man is. And the way we raise girls and boys, girls are encouraged to be diligent and cooperative. And there's nothing that where a girl bumps into negativity if she's diligently doing her homework and trying to get good grades. 
that kind of thing. Whereas boys, they start getting a message as early as kindergarten that excelling in school is femi, is nerdy, it ain't cool. And by middle school, the toxicity just skyrockets. And all boys are given the message. You want to be a guy? Don't, don't appear to care about school. I know we can all say, well, I know kid, boys who aren't like that. But the stats are clear. Interestingly, the only boys that escape this for a while are Asian American boys. They perform equally with girls up until middle school. And then it kicks in for them. For Asian American boys, when they hit adolescence, when they become more aware of their gender, their masculine identity, as opposed to anything, they are more influenced then by the society, by their peers, and Asian American boys also become aware that they are looked at as less masculine by our toxic culture. And so as soon as they get that message, they then fall behind Asian American girls. They, they're sheltered from that message in early childhood, but as soon as their environment, as soon as they're little more away from their parents, their families, and more concerned about what their peers think of them, it kicks in. And, you know, psychologists will say that actually boys are more um, sensitive <laughs> than girls to environmental influences. So in other words, boys are more sensitive to peer pressure. Um, I think this is a huge story and I hope that we see in my lifetime this starting to be addressed. Um, and the American uh, Psychological Association, I think, yes, American Psychological Association, uh, more than a decade ago, released a set of guidelines of how psychologists should look at treating women and girls um, because they noted that women have, uh, and girls, have to deal with sexual violence, with pay inequality, uh, they disproportionately suffer from eating disorders and anxiety, and they were saying, you, we've got to be more sensitive if we want to be effective in helping them. The American Psychological Association has also released guidelines like this about treating older people, about treating racial minorities, ethnic minorities, LGBT 
community, it has never put anything out about treating men and boys because men were already perceived as the default. They are men. And it's all these others, women, ethnic minorities, that are the subgroups, that the male, the white male, no worrying about him. He's the, he's the main, man, main man. We all know them. And guess what? They finally decided that's nuts. And so they have just released guidelines for psychological practice with boys and men. This is using four decades of research. It has been being developed over 13 years because men are three and a half times more likely to die by suicide. They are much more likely to have academic challenges, to receive harsher punishments in school settings. They are victims of 77% of homicides they are the perpetrators of 90% of homicides. And this American Psychological Association guidelines say when you look at those realities for men, what is at the core of it? And you know what they say is at the core? the Western concept of masculinity. Toxic masculinity that relies on stoicism, dominance, aggression, and competitiveness. Anyone going to argue with that? That's And our boys are taught that. They get the message, if not from their parents, often from their parents. But also from the culture at large, the society, by teachers, by it just keeps coming at them. And men and boys are not the better for it. They're harmed. The more men cling to these rigid views of masculinity, the more likely they are being uh, harming, making men sick. There's a lot of work to do here. And so many men are so resistant. I mean, it, it would be a true upending, just as the women's liberation movement was, a true upending of what has just been the default. This is a man and has always been a man. So this associate, this, uh, this, these guidelines came out and of course the right wing went berserk. National Review, David French. It is interesting that in a world that otherwise teaches boys and girls to be yourself, that rule often applies to everyone but the traditional male 
who has traditional male impulses and characteristics. Then they're a problem. Then they're deemed toxic. So, a reporter who reports on this kind of stuff said, what's difficult about these new guidelines is that they ask us to wrestle with a very complicated idea that in a society in which gender roles have historically been rigid and that rigidity has placed a, a, the lion's share of power in the hands of just one gender, it is possible for the rulers, the ones with the power, to be harmed by this tradition every bit as much as the people who they dominate. So the idea that's got to percolate into the American consciousness is that if girls and women are harmed by this idea of what is a man, because God knows girls and women are and continue to be, the men themselves, the ones on whom all the power is given are also being harmed. So what we got here is a lousy system, a toxic system, a rigid system that needs to be brought down. But imagine how threatening that is for so many men. and how counter this is to everything they've ever been taught, to how they perceive themselves and their value. I don't know. This is a... I, I want... I mean, this is... If you want to read this thing, it was... Where was this? I think I, it was in the Washington Post... And it's called uh, How Traditional Masculinity Hurts the Men Who Believe in It Most. Okay. I mean, to me, this is really important. No, I don't remember this at all. Curtis sent me this. Remember the Alan Alda piece from 1975. <laughs> he wrote this? Uh, <laughs> I'll give you the first line. Eh, the first two lines. Everyone knows that testosterone, the so-called male hormone, is found in both men and women. What is not so well known is that men have an overdose. <laughs> Until now it has been thought, can I read some of this to you? It's good. Until now it has been thought that the level of testosterone in men is normal simply because they have it. There it is, that default thing again. White male, that's it. But if you consider how abnormal their behavior is, 
then you are led to the hypothesis that almost all men are suffering from testosterone poisoning. Uh, there is hope. He got me, I'm not Sufferers can change, even though it's harder than God. It's, it's hard. They must first realize, however, that they are sick. The face that this condition is in, the fact that this condition is inherited in the same way that dimples are does not make it cute. He says there's a simple test for the seven warning signs of testosterone poisoning. Let's try them out. One, do you have an intense need to win? Well, geez, I do. <laughs> when, when having sex, do you always take pride in finishing before your partner? Do you always ask if this time was the best? Um, does violence play a big part in your life? How many hours do you watch football, hockey, children's cartoons? When someone crosses you, do you wish you could stuff his face full of your fist? Okay. Are you thing-oriented? Do you value the parts of a woman's body more than the woman? Are you turned, well, do you have an intense need to reduce every difficult situation? If you were present at a riot, would you tend to count the crowd? If your wife is despondent over a deeply felt setback, do you take her temperature? I don't get some of these. Do you tend to measure things that are really qualitative? Are you a little too mechanically oriented? Are you easily triggered, oh my God, into competition? And he says, for women, remember that a little sympathy is a dangerous thing. The sufferer will be inclined to interpret any concern for him as appropriate submissiveness. Let him know that you expect him to fight his way back to health and behave like a normal person for his sake, not yours. Hmm. Only after he begins to get his condition under control and has actually begun to enjoy life should you let him know that there really is no such thing as testosterone poisoning. Uh, okay, so I guess that's it. Um, I really think that this is an Im important uh, subject. I, I, I didn't have the uh, stomach to watch the uh, Bill Barr, uh, uh, soon-to-be Attorney General hearings, but I did see uh, reporting of it, and... Uh, it was it was strange because I mean there's Lindsey Graham now who heads he's now the chair of the of the committee uh, and Lindsey Graham you know Trump's little first lieutenant he went after Trump and so did this bar guy let me find the let me find the um, this exchange. Uh, Lindsey Graham says to uh, Barr yesterday, among other things, uh, do you believe, he, he asked uh, Barr, oh, why can't I find this? Do you believe Mueller would be involved in a witch hunt against anybody? The nominee, Trump's nominee, answers, I don't believe Mr. Mueller would be involved in a witch hunt. 
Then he was asked whether Jeff Session was right to recuse himself from the Russia investigation, which of course made Trump insanely angry and eventually led to Sessions being thrown out. And Barr's reply, I think he probably did the right thing, recusing himself. So here's the guy Trump has picked, and he's saying, there is no witch hunt. And Sessions was right to recuse himself. And when he said, I think he did the right thing by recusing himself, Graham says, I agree. And then said, President Trump is a one-pager kind of guy. Barr the Trump pick says, I suspect he is. And the hearing room breaks out in laughter. They're making fun of Trump. Um, and uh, he was asked uh, by Dick Durbin, you seem like a rational person. Why would you want this job? <laughs> and Barr said this. The rule of law is the heartbeat of this country. And he went on to say, I will protect the independence and the reputation of the Justice Department. And he was asked, but look at how the president treats people. Look what he did to Sessions. Look what he's done to Rosenstein. And Barr said, yeah, that might give me pause if I was 45 or 50 years old, but it doesn't give me pause now. I will not be bullied into doing anything I think is wrong. I, seeing that, felt a little more, uh, wow. And here's what I think. Why would Barr take the job? Maybe, and this is my hope, you can say it's my fantasy, he realizes that by taking the job, he will be in this consequential historical position to be a hero. And it could be that he was essentially retired, that he's coming out of retirement because he sees an opportunity to be a historical hero by being the one who will stand up to Trump. That is my fantasy. And seeing that exchange made me think that maybe it's not, a f maybe that's the case. I don't know. Call me hopelessly naive or whatever, but that, th that's what I, I do think. So, all right, you guys, tomorrow, last day of the week for me, and um, I hope you'll be there. Okay? Bye. Lynn Cullen Live. Monday through Friday from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. and archived at pghcitypaper.com. The opinions expressed on Lynn Cullen Live are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the viewpoint of Pittsburgh City Paper or its advertisers.